Hey, what's up, guys? This is James Thayer with The World's Last Night with another topical pad podcast. I'm going to be talking about how we can keep ourselves from becoming Stalin. I'm using this as an archetype of basically ideological hypocrisy. So I'm going to start out by actually reading a little bit of testimony from people who have lived a life under communism. Now, people aren't even really defending communism anymore in our society. I mean, they're not, <laughs> excuse me, they're no longer making the argument that, oh, well, that's communism, not socialism. And there's, I mean, that's at least more honest because even Karl Marx himself, you know, when he was asked what the difference between socialism and communism was, he basically said, well, it's the same, uh, two sides of the same coin was his response. And as we know, Lenin, he only viewed socialism as an intermediary between capitalism and communism. So, you know, people who, and I used to be like this, I used to be a socialist. So in high school, in particular, I was very obsessed with Michael Moore. I, was, I loved his documentaries and especially Sicko. And I remember telling my dad, arguing with my dad, and, and he wasn't like arguing against me because he's better than that, I guess, <laughs> better than me. Um, but I was basically arguing for socialized medicine. And I kind of couched it in competition. And, you know, it's not the same thing people are wanting right now. They're wanting to actually nationalize the healthcare industry, which is communism. It's the government controlling of the means of production. In this case, it's an entire industry of healthcare. So people aren't as quick to now gloss, you know, say, no, I want socialism, not communism, because, well, when they're faced with the reality of it, it is the end game of what they would desire. And in fact, I had someone recently I was debating with on Quora, um, and we were just talking about Marxist ideology, the current riots going on, and, you know, he eventually, he was, he eventually said that, well, the Marxists are fighting the fascists, um, you support fascism. I was like, when have I ever said that? Like fascism is when a party rules a nation. So in Germany, it was the Nazi party. Um, you had Mussolini's party in Italy. Well, he responded, and which kind of gave it away to me that, yeah, this guy is a Marxist, even though he was sort of trying to deny it. He basically responded, no, the party is that of the capital class, those who hold capital. And we only have one party in America because both the Republicans and the Democrats support this. So in any case, when you meet someone in society who starts to talk about, and this is how our conversation came up, I basically said, well, they're interested in class warfare, which was the current, you know, rioters, the Black Lives Matter um, organization, talking, you know, them claiming they're trained Marxists. And I basically, the whole conversation with this gentleman started off by me saying, well, they are interested in class warfare. And then his response was, well, that doesn't, that doesn't matter, right? Like, I think that's a good thing. So if someone in society, um, and at the same time of this, he was basically, he's also saying he wasn't, it wasn't Marxist. In the end, though, he, he flat out admitted it. So when someone in society starts, you know, espousing ideas of an ideology, and but then denying the true nature of that ideology, just engage with them for a little bit, and eventually it'll it'll show up, and they'll maybe even admit it themselves, like this gentleman. And that's any ideology whatsoever. The whole point of this podcast is to talk about um, having a consistent ideology and avoiding hypocrisy. Now, 
Stalin is a character who is hypocritical. That's the whole point. And most socialists will be very quick to point that out, that, hey, communism hasn't actually really been tried. That's sort of the argument. And then they'll say, well, because Stalinism was very authoritarian, communism would be the equality of uh, outcome. And as such, no one like Stalin could thrive in such a society because, well, they can't have more power. There's got to be some equality. Okay, this is actually, uh, you know, intellectually consistent if communism could be mastered and actually worked out in, and we know in practice it can't because in every single state that it's been tried, it has not worked out. Now, it does work on a smaller scale. Your family is a form of communism. Resources are typically shared equally if you're in a good family that doesn't hide bank accounts or whatever. Um, If you can all trust one another and love one another, usually resources are shared equally. People are given equal respect. Now, there are roles, parents over children, for example. Um, In the early church, in the Bible, communism worked for a little bit for the early church, too. You had all these people who were now transient. They were kicked out of their homes because they were converting to Christianity. And whatever they did own, they would sell and share to those who needed it, which is a very communistic idea. And churches, even on a small scale, can sometimes walk out communist ideas. You're talking about, you know, churches of 50, 60 people. The problem is human nature eventually takes over. And on a larger scale, it stops working. And sometimes even on the family scale, it stops working. If you stop giving an understanding that all the whole family unit is making money and you have maybe one breadwinner or whatever, they might start coveting it and thinking they deserve more of it because they are they, they fool themselves into thinking they deserve more of it. So the whole point that I'm going to be giving you today is that we need to really be consistent in our ideology. And then secondly... I would assert that most people you meet today who are vying for the, you know, the current push for Marxism in American society are not ideologically consistent. They are like Stalin, even though they would argue that their ideology could never create a Stalin. And so by the end of this podcast, I'm going to give you plenty of evidence, hopefully, to prove how this actually works itself out in our modern society. Um, Before that, I'm going to give you some insight into what life is like under communism. There was a a Quora question. Quora is an an online sort of um, community where people write essays and somewhat debate. It's a little healthier than Facebook and way healthier than Twitter. But uh, someone asked a question that, like, why, if communism is so good, do people who have lived under communism never support it? Like, they always hate it. (laughs) And people who had lived under communist regimes then started giving their opinions on this question. And so this one stood out to me. Her name was Caitlin Altienu, and she lived under communism. And this is what she had to to say. I was unlucky to live 18 years in the quote-unquote communist paradise. Both of my parents were born and lived most of their lives under communism. 
Oh, and by the way, she was in uh, Romania, which we already discussed about the book Tortured for Christ, about the uh, pastor who lived under communist rule in, prior, in Romania and prior to that under Nazi rule, um, and how the communists would root out the Christians. They would actually implant themselves into churches to root them out, and they eventually created a state form of that Christianity, where all that was used to do was to root out people who were true believers and against the state. Okay, anyways, she, she goes on to write, My parents were workers, driver, and telecom. My both grandfathers were shepherds. The only thing better than today was the fact children in villages got more equal educations with the one from large cities. Today, the young teachers choose living in big cities and more personal security as long as you shut up. All right. He said, she said nothing else. What do I regret? And her English isn't very good. Forced labor? Yes, the communists used kids to collect crops. 10, 12, 14 years, kids forced up to two months a year in rain and mud, dragging large baskets of corn or potatoes. No payment, no food. What to regret? Life in an enormous prison. The people who want to leave this paradise were shot. There were thousands of people killed each year. Nobody wants to come in, only leave. And then she gives us, she says, below there's a, there's a famous picture of Nadia Kamenetsi. Kamenetsi. All right, so it's this gymnast, famous gymnast from Romania. After illegally crossing the border in 1989, which she said gives you about a 50% chance of being shot. Can you imagine if such a privileged person took the risk, how bad it actually was? <clears throat> so she's saying, this famous gymnast was at the top of our hierarchy, and even she thought it was so bad that it was worth a 50% chance of getting shot to try to escape this communist regime. She said, my kids are asking me, dad, which cartoon? So this is a guy. Hold on. Apparently Catalan or Catalan is a man's name. Okay. Anyway, um, dad, which cartoon you watched during your childhood? What about chocolate? What about ice cream? What about cakes? And then he goes on to write, yes, I regret my lost childhood. I've seen incredibly few of those, and I ate extremely few normal things in that period. Most of the decent stuff were at black market, and my parents couldn't afford it. Do you know my dreams as a kid? Mountains of bananas, oranges, or chocolates. Never got any of it. After 1990, we were like a horde of primitive creatures in front of abundance of products in the Western supermarkets. Someone else uh, commenting on that particular fact uh, later on uh, goes to say, um, let's see, let me just give you both these quotes. People commented on this. One of them said, me too. Back in the old country, Poland, mind you, not months, but a week or so every school year. My city high school had a thing for harvesting potatoes. This other one named Peter Kling says, 100% true. I still remember spending weeks on harvesting crops for no, no pay, mandatory at the beginning of each school year. Another person said her uh, or his grandmother was just absolutely astounded after 1990 seeing oranges in the supermarket year round. And so after the liberation from communism, she ate an orange for breakfast every morning. So these are people living in a society where they are finally opened up to capitalism after 1990, and they see the fruit and prosperity, the literal fruit and prosperity of capitalism versus the Marxist hellhole they had been living under. Okay. Um, weeks, okay, what should I regret? 
Weeks and weeks of hard working of my parents. Sometime only two Sundays were free per month for a miserable sal salary. Average salary was in 1989, $175 USD. So United States dollar. In places full of broken windows and cold. Long queues to get the ration of food or bread or gasoline. Now I remember joking uh, back, let's see, my second anniversary, I believe, Allie and I basically said, hey, let's not do anything. Let's go out and buy a Wii, the, which is a video game console. And so we wanted to get this Wii console. We went out to like Best Buy, we went to Target, went all over the place, couldn't find them. They're all sold out. And so then we had to get on a wait list, which is a, a virtual queue or a virtual line to get one. We eventually decided not to get one, which I'm glad because we don't really play video games anyway with each other. But um, I then remember at this exact same time, Venezuela, which was a darling of socialists. Uh, we have a politician in America named Bernie Sanders who constantly praised Venezuela and what was being done to create a, social, a socialist paradise there. Well, at this time, Venezuela was having insane shortages. People were having to wait in line for toilet paper, um, for example. And the and we're going to talk about, you know, this goes back to what we're talking about. There was a political party and a, a dictator at this point, right? So obviously everything wasn't equal. And so that's the, you know, what the socialists will tell you. Well, they haven't actually tried socialism because... Uh, there was a dictator, okay? The, the, we're going to talk about how this is an issue for the socialist in a moment. But I remember comparing the fact that in America, I have to wait in line to buy a brand new expensive video game console. But in Venezuela, they have to wait in line to buy toilet paper. And that's a great depiction of the difference between what, a, what capitalism can do for society versus what communism does to a society. Okay. That was my country. Oh, that my country was occupied by a criminal regime who wiped out the best people of my country and replaced them with illiterate foreigners. The hardest and smartest workers were killed and replaced by people selected just for being poor as a virtue. This is in contrast to a capitalist society where the hardest and smartest make more money. And so, like, take someone like Elon Musk right now. He briefly became the fifth wealthiest man in, um, in the world because his stock, Tesla, took off. Why? Well, because the man works 100 hours a week. He sleeps at his desk. He has no personal life. He's probably insane. Um, so he's the hardest worker among us. I... I I've worked really hard in my life and in my career, especially when, we, when I started my company, especially when I started my first film contest, but nothing like Elon Musk. And he's smarter than me. He's smarter than most people. He, he sees the future and he says electric cars are going to be the next big thing. But let me, instead of taking it one generation further, like Ford and GM are doing, let me skip and go three generations forward and create cars that go twice as far as their cars and that are basically, you know, giant robots, iPads. Like, he sees the future. And then, hey, let us um, let me launch people to Mars. Let me get that, that sweet NASA government contract, invest what I have. Just smart, hardworking, and he's rewarded for it. At one point, fifth wealthiest person in the world. Doesn't mean he had it in cash, he had it in stock value. Something else to talk about. But in communism, your virtue is that you're poor. Your virtue is that you 
suffer. Your virtue is that you lack intellect, lack beauty, lack athleticism, lack drive. And as such, the people who have more, who are more beautiful, who are more athletic, who are smarter, who have more money, who have drive, who have creative ambition, they get hauled off, killed, exported, worked to death, reduced for equality. Because it's a lot easier to take away from the top than it is to build up the bottom. Capitalism does build up the bottom, but it's slow. And that, that annoys people. And that's why they, they, I think, sometimes give up on it and go to a system like communism. Because capitalism is, it is guaranteed prosperity for almost everyone in society, but it takes time. It, it takes effort and drive and a culture that, you know, has that Protestant work ethic, which is something we can talk about later. In any case, um, it's not like a quick ri- get rich quick overnight kind of thing. Um, there's also something to be said about, you know, people like to, to bring, for some reason, people like to bring the environment into this conversation. And they say capitalism is bad for the environment. And so we need to switch to a more socialist um, concept, like the Green New Deal, which was a, man, just a a essay of pipe dreams. And uh, they basically were saying the way to get, the way to help the environment is to get rid of capitalism and industry. Um, We know for a fact that it's the opposite way around, because if you look at developing nations, they're the ones that pollute the most. Third world nations pollute the most. Uh, I think it's the top 10 rivers in the world that contribute to plastic in our oceans come out of third world nations, not America, not the UK, not Canada, right? They come out of parts of Africa and parts of Asia. And it's only once society is prosperous that you then have the capacity to say, we need to make our environment last a long time. Because now you can focus on that, right? And so you then start investing in it, just like Elon Musk has done. Only a, a hyper-prosperous society can afford to put in the billions of dollars it takes to engineer a vehicle that runs off of electricity and can go 300 miles before needing a recharge. Only a hyper-prosperous society through capitalism can take the time to create fuel cell batteries that can turn water through hydrolysis into energy or the solar panels that Elon Musk's company is creating, right? Or even the rocket boosters, the Falcon rocket boosters that land themselves back on Earth. Before that, they were just dispensed, right? When NASA was doing it, they were just dispensed. But a private organization created recyclable rocket boosters. And you only get that through capitalism. So that's off, off topic. Um, really, yes. I'm focusing on hypocrisy. We're going to get there in a second. Okay, so what else do they say? All right, so filthy buses, filthy trains, filthy toilets, Korean-type spectacles, and lies 24 hours a day. 
After 1990, my mother's salary got to the level of 60 USD net. My, my father was fired and I was a student. Nobody in my family was ever sorry one second for the collapse of communism. I took a job and helped my family. I remember my, my grandfather crying like a baby in the front of the TV during the events of 1989, refusing to believe it is happening. P.S. Never left Romania, but I had a strong intention before 1990 to illegally cross the border for the free world. And then he finally says, thank God, in all caps, thank God my kids will never see what I saw. Okay, here it is. Bill Caffrey commented, Viva free markets and capitalism. You're not the first person I've heard describe how things changed or their amazement coming to the U.S. and seeing a store full of products. One friend told me his babushka cried when she discovered oranges were, were available year-round. She was delighted to be able to eat one with breakfast every morning. Stories like that make me appreciate how hard life was in communist country. So glad the Czech people are much more free today. Okay, so... I wanted to read that, and oh my gosh, you can. there's so many stories. And in fact, on my list of books to read next is the Gulag Archipelago. And um, Audible is trying to finalize that book series right now. So as soon as it comes out, I'm buying it and going to listen to it um, because it really talks about what life was in the Gulags under Stalin. And he's who I really want to talk about today. But I'm going to talk about that kind of character through the lens of an interaction I had with one of my best friends. So, one of my friends... Okay, so basically, it, the conversation went down like this. A producer friend of mine, who's not the person I'm, I'm about to talk about, but a producer friend of mine called me. James, uh, and... I'll, I'll skip over my inferences. He basically said, James, um, this network that we've been pitching to, they're... And they're going crazy right now. They're in turmoil, I think is the word he used. And the network is A&E. I'll just go ahead and say that. It's A&E. Because uh, we've been pitching a show to them. And he said the they canceled Live PD, which was their highest grossing show on the network. So, okay, now they're at a money loss during a pandemic where they can't produce more content anyway. He said, the woman who decided to cancel it is now getting death threats and for the last month has had um, personal private security. He then went on to say, uh, as such, basically, our pitch is being tabled. So whereas before this turmoil within the network, our pitch was being considered. Now, the show idea we have is pretty awesome. It's vegans that go hunting so and eat and cook and eat the deer that they shoot. So anyways, that's all I'll say about that. But he then goes on to say, and an insider within the network basically told me that they are going to start prioritizing uh, producers based on their skin color. In other words, they only want to hire black producers. And the crew has to have a certain quota of black people in it. Okay, I mean, that's super, that's disheartening that this is happening with my pitch tape. So then I go and I talk to a friend that I talk, I talk to about politics and philosophy frequently. More like ethics and politics, I would say. And I say, hey man, get this, this is what's happening. And then I'm like, I just, I hate all of this. A, because someone cancels your favorite show, 
That doesn't mean you should send death threats to the person that canceled it. That's what a toddler would do with if they had power, any power whatsoever. It's a toddler tactic. Throwing a hissy fit because something's off the air that you liked, okay? It's incommensurate with the action to then want to kill someone. But B, A and E self-inflicted themselves by canceling your highest grossing show in order to placate a extremely vocal minority of people that hate cops. Because the whole show is about police departments, right? Okay, so, you know, I don't like those people either. <laughs> but C, the network itself is obviously exercising racist practices if it's discriminating against me based on my skin color. So it's not choosing my idea because my idea is good or bad. Instead, it's basing whether or not they're going to take my idea off of the creator's immutable trait. Like, I have no control over my skin color. Well, he, he agreed with the first two and the last one, he like heavily disagreed. And in fact, he said it's a good, it's basically a good thing that they discriminated against me based on my skin color. And that base, I need to step aside based on my skin color, not because of my work or creativity or any of that. So more black people can fill that spot. And so I'm thinking. That's one of the most unjust things I've ever heard of. And in fact, it sounds very similar to a time in American history where people did that, right? They discriminated against people based on their skin color and barred them from getting jobs based on their skin. I mean, they literally, you know, had signs, blacks need not apply. So I'm like, you're telling me that that is now a good thing? Like one of the most... One of the worst moments in American history, one of the deepest, grossest scars on American history is now a good thing. But then it, it really hit me more personally because he's, he's wanting to sacrifice my livelihood, my family for his principles because, well, he's espousing Marxism, this class warfare, this victim class and oppressor class without regard to individual traits. I've never discriminated against anyone based on their skin color. I've hired black people. I've hired Muslims. I mean, like, not even religion. That's probably how I identify myself the most is by Christianity. But I've hired Jews. I've hired Muslims. I've hired atheists, agnostics. Don't care what you are. I'm going to hire you because you're good at your job. So... Within that framework, I'm ideologically consistent. I believe it's sinful to discriminate against people based on immutable traits. So I don't do it. But he has this, this conflict, and I'll tell you how I pointed it out. He's a lawyer. And so I said, well, 5% of all lawyers are black. And then I said, uh, but they make up like 13% of the population. So... If this is an ideology you actually agree with, why don't you step down, give up your livelihood, and allow a black person to take your job? And he got really defensive about that. And people get defensive about their ideology whenever they are called out for the hypocrisy and the inconsistency within it. Because here's a person that thinks it's good to place that burden upon his friend, i.e. me, but he himself is unwilling 
to take that burden upon himself and his family to actually do what he believes is good and right. And so this is called hypocrisy. It's a pharisaical um, ideology that we find in the New Testament. It's the exact people that Jesus called a brood of vipers, right? So it's the ideology that's bad. I still love my friends. That hurts. I will say like it, it hurt my feelings that someone would want to sacrifice me and my livelihood and my family based on something I can't control, like an immutable trait. And then at the same time, they're, they turn around and they're unwilling to do that to themselves. But that got me thinking, this is, this is how Stalin, Maduro, this is how all the dictators rise in a socialist society. It makes sense now because those are people who preached things like Marxism their whole life, but they never actually did it themselves. So instead of becoming the equality they demanded of everyone else, they somehow placed themselves on a throne above that to where, oh, no, other people should be uh, fired. Other people should be hauled off to the gulags to create my equality. But me, no, uh, no, I'm staying where I am. And so that's how you get the Stalin in that society, because he thinks he's above his own rules. This is a an issue um, with our modern day politics on kind of all sides. But let me extrapolate that to the current Marxist movement in general. Now, when Martin Luther King Jr. was doing his um, his protests, he said basically there were like four steps you had to go through, and he lists these in his letter from Birmingham Jail. The first one was basically, uh, you know, you need to find out if there's a justification for direct action. Now, direct action to him was a peaceful protest of some sort. This could be a sit-in. This could be a march. Uh, it's usually something that inconveniences people, but it's nonviolent. Uh, the second thing was, well, you need to negotiate. And so we went, he basically says in this for Birmingham, he's like, we went to the city council and we tried to negotiate. We asked them to take down the signs that said, uh, that were humiliating to us that wouldn't allow black people in or, or whatever. And he said, well, they didn't negotiate in good faith. They wouldn't, they wouldn't do these things that were unjust. They wouldn't fix them. And so he said, well, okay, the third thing we did was self-purification. This is the last step before the fourth thing is direct action. What is the peaceful protest? Now, the self-purification step is something that Marxists don't do. They really don't. And it's why a man like MLK is on this other side from them. Like he's opposed to them in this regard, because in the self-purification step, step three, he basically says, actually, I wrote it down, so I'm not having to paraphrase him. Um, Mindful of the difficulties involved, we decided to undertake a process of self-purification. We began a series of workshops on nonviolence, and we repeatedly asked ourselves, are you able to accept blows without retaliating? Are you able to endure the ordeal of jail? So he basically said we needed to purify ourselves from violence. And 
that is what he's, you know, typified for and loved for today. Now, on the flip side, you have the modern riots where people are violent in every capacity. People have been shot. Officers have been run over by vehicles. Officers have been shot and murdered. Uh, You have uh, bystanders shot and murdered. Children, even. You have um, arson, people burning and lighting courthouses on fire. You have vandalism, people spray painting everything they can get their hands on. You basically have every form of violence, and including, I know people don't care about this anymore, but profanity and vulgarity. Screaming, slurs at police officers, whether they're black or white, and demeaning people. So people don't care about that anymore, but screaming F the cops is actually not peaceable assembly, right? So it's, it's, agi- it's actually agitating. It's actually trying to start something. Not peaceable at all. Um, and so these people haven't gone through that step of self-purification. My point is, they become what they hate. They become oppressive even if they hate oppression. They become Stalin in the midst of the double think of, I can usher in equality for everyone else, but me personally, uh uh-uh, not for me. I'm above it. I'm not going to give up my job so that my utopia can come in, but I will force other people to give up their job. I'm not going to give up my thoughts and my opinions and my right to free speech, but I will try to cancel other people who have their thoughts, their opinions, and their freedom of speech. I'm going to try to get them fired. I'm going to try to get them disowned by their family. I'm going to try to get them, um, you know, doxxed and all of that. So in the end you're left with the potential for several thousands of various Stalins or Maduros or whatever should the Marxist campaign actually succeed. What is one of the first things Stalin did after the Bolsheviks took over in Russia? He killed them all. Those that didn't die of natural causes or from the revolution itself, he ended up actually killing And so Jordan Peterson has a great point about people who make this claim that communism hasn't been tried. And if I were the one in charge, then it would actually go go well. He basically says, first, you're probably not competent enough. He says, it's arrogance to think that you are competent enough to do what Stalin was unable to do. Uh, But secondly... You're not good enough. There's this, and that goes against the Marxist ideology from the get-go, because Marxists believe that you're inherently good. It's just your environments that that's bad, which in turn makes you do bad things. But you're not actually responsible for these things because you are inherently good. That's contrary, as we talked about in the last podcast, to Christianity. But the argument is, if you're in Stalin's position, you're just as bad. You're going to do the same thing. It's inevitable. You will want to hold power over others and not subvert yourself to equality. I'm reminded of George Washington. That's why he's so respected, because he could have been a king, but he said no, and he stepped down. 
from from being president. Uh, <laughs> so that's that's kind of a miracle, to be honest, in setting that precedent. Of course, we had another president that decided to take three terms, <laughs> and then we then we made a rule against it because that guy, well, he should not have done that. Um, in any case. You're not good enough and you're not competent enough. And Jordan Peterson argues, let's pretend you were. Pretend you were. He said, there's someone who's always going to be waiting to stab you in the back or shoot you in the back. And that person's going to be Stalin. You're going to be one of those revolutionaries. Maybe you were a purist. Maybe you did sell all of your worldly items. Maybe you did give up your job for someone who you believe was part of an oppressive class. You know, whatever. You were a purist. You went through the self-purification that MLK was saying before you took action. You weren't violent. Say you were good and say you were intelligent and you were competent enough to help facilitate the utopia on Earth. He basically argues you're going to get shot in the back by someone like Stalin. So how do we avoid becoming Stalin? Um... It takes self-reflection, contemplating your ideas, and actually deciding that you're not going to be someone of inconsistency. You're not going to give in to double-think. You're not going to be, as uh, James in the Bible writes, a double-minded, double-minded person. Um, you are someone who would rather know truth with a capital T than cling to ideology that is in the face of it. In other words, no matter how ingrained you are with your ideas, you're open to this to the concept that you could be wrong. And if you do the self-reflection and say you are for the Marxist utop- utopia, don't ignore the places where you are screwing up in within your own ideology. It's the same as me as a Christian. You are constantly undergoing self-purification. Now, the Bible, instead, it uses the uh, phrase putting on Christ. You're constantly putting on Christ, which means you are playing as Jesus, like a child who plays house, pretends they are a dad or a mom, or pretends they are um, a businessman. They put it on like clothes. They, They wear the fake doctor's apron, right? The idea is the more you play at being Jesus, the more you will become like Jesus. So you ask yourself, remember those wristbands, what would Jesus do in certain situations? Well, if you keep practicing and practicing and practicing being like Jesus, eventually you will become more like Jesus. Now you're unable to do this through the Holy Spirit. Doing so helps you root out yourself and your own biases and Instead, you're replacing it with a person of Christ. And ultimately, I feel, this is going to be my segue, (laughs) um, ultimately, I feel this is how you combat Marxism. We've already shown that Marxism is ideologically against religion. We've shown, we've read, we've went back to the sources, Ad Fontes, we've read Marx's literature that basically says the reason for Marxism that's necessary is because of religion. And religion is just an opiate that makes you unaware of your present circumstances and your need for revolution. And his argument that we have to throw off 
We have to throw off our religion in order for this revolution to occur so we can usher in a utopia of equality. And there's a man who agreed with that. And that's the last little bit I'm going to read. There's a man who agreed with that. Uh, his name was Malcolm Muggeridge. It's a good name. He was born in 1903 and he died in 1990, which is the year that I was born. Uh, I'm just going to read a little bit about him uh, from his Wikipedia page. It says, in his 20s, Muggeridge was attracted to communism. So what did, what did he do? <laughs> well, he went to live in the Soviet Union in the 1930s and then became a forceful anti-communist. This is why I started with actual testimony of what it's like to live in an equal world. It's just equal misery, death, and lowest denominators everywhere. So this man, he was attracted to communism so much that it encouraged him to move to the Soviet Union. Uh, again, I think of Bernie Sanders, who is so attracted to it that he honeymooned in the Soviet Union. It's like the last place I would think to, to honeymoon in. He came back praising it. And he actually came back saying that uh, breadlines were a good thing. Came back and said breadlines are a good thing because at least they have bread. Anyways, all right, I'll go on about Malcolm Muggeridge. During World War II, he worked for the British government as a soldier and a spy, first in East Africa for two years and then in Paris. In the aftermath of the war, he converted to Christianity under the influence of Hugh Kingsmill and helped to bring Mother Teresa to popular attention in the West. Uh, tidbit doesn't really matter, but he will say uh, later, by the end of his life, he converts to Catholicism under the influence of Mother Teresa. But we didn't really have a good understanding of who Mother Teresa was until this man brought her to light to the Western world. So you can thank this guy for that who started out as a communist and uh, ended up becoming extremely anti-communist. Why? Because he experienced it, but secondly, because he converted. So what else did that conversion do for him? We'll go on. Um, this is a criticism of Muggeridge. All right. Muggeridge's predatory behavior towards women during his BBC years, so he worked at BBC, was brought to the attention of the public by a book about the recent history of the BBC. He's described as a compulsive groper, reported, reportedly being nicknamed the Pouncer, and as a man fully deserving of the acronym NSIT, not safe in taxis. And then we'll go on. While confirming the facts and the suffering inflicted on his family, his niece said that he changed his behavior when he converted to Christianity in the 1960s. So what did Christianity do for this man? Well, of course, it saved him from his sins, and it sounds like he had a lot of them. He mistreated women. He, he treated them as objects for his own sexual gratification rather than as children of God, made in the image of God, and as such deserving of respect and love. But as his niece says, this was before he was a Christian. He converted in the 1960s. And again, uh, the Christianity also saved him from communism. So he went on to write several theological books, like bestsellers. He worked at the, BB, uh, worked at the BBC, or he created documentaries, I guess, on Christianity. It radically changed his life. And this is why you're going to find 
people that support Marxism, I think, honestly, that same friend I was telling you about earlier sent me a poll once, and I'll double check this, but he sent me a poll once, and he was arguing that most people in America support Black Lives Matter. And I was like, well, how? Because that's a, they have a far left ideology. They want to tear down courthouses, the state itself, the nuclear family. I'm like, you know, conservatives can't be on board of that. Uh, and then moderates are probably not going to be on board with that. And then even more conservative or liberal instead of progressive Democrats aren't going to be or, you know, aren't going to be on board with that. Like that's got to be a minuscule part of of society. And he explained, well, you know, people don't know about all those things about Black Lives Matter. They don't actually look it up. And so they just think it's about racial equality and that's it, which as we've talked about in this podcast. That's a good thing. But that's not what Black Lives Matter is about. Um, and then he sent me this the poll that said, you know, people's feelings on the movement. And 40 percent, the, the outlier was like 40 percent of atheists agree with the movement. The next highest category was like 20 something percent or something crazy like that. And I pointed that out. I was like, this is a crazy outlier. And that's it. That's the end of the discussion. That, like, we didn't talk about it more after that. But as you and I know, this ideology is against God. And so what is the uh, solution? How do you avoid becoming Stalin or becoming party to a group that eventually results in a Stalin as every single communist state across the planet has done? Well, you combat it with Christianity. You combat it with the gospel. And you don't do it in a political way. You do it by talking to your neighbor and preaching the gospel to them. Just as this man, who was a communist, who was also a deviant man that groped women, just as he could have his ideology changed and then eventually made consistent and not self-contradictory or conflicting, anyone else can have that too. So what is our proper position towards people that propagate these ideologies even inconsistently? It should be of love and it should be of sharing the gospel and praying for them that God changes their heart and opens up and reveals the nature of the world as God created it and designed it. And the nature of what C.S. Lewis would call the Tao, the uh, necessity of all virtues to submit themselves to God. You can't make a virtue God. You, when you do that, you're creating your own subjective morality and it will inevitably lead to death and sin usually on the way to death. So that's all I have here. How do we avoid becoming Stalin? You dig deep into the gospel. You do as MLK said and self-reflect and undergo self-purification. And if you can't do that, then you really have to question your entire paradigm and I would say your solution is to make sure it actually aligns 
with that of our supreme ruler. And when you see mostly atheists, people who are irreligious, people that support uh, pagan practices and evil ideologies in our society back an ideology, when you see the founder of that ideology hates God, wants, desires to supplant God and be his own God and have the universe revolve around himself, when you see all of that, there should be some sort of, as a Christian, headlights going off in your head, blinking, 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 caution. This isn't of God. This is another one of those ideologies that our true enemy has implanted into society. And he's made it attractive because that's the only way you're going to adopt it, right? And you should be weary of it. Just like every other ideology out there that tries to go against our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against these principalities. And Marxism is just another principality that there is a spirit of evil behind. The fruit of it has always been misery. And Jesus told us we can judge a tree by its fruit. Well, we can also judge the tree itself whenever we, we read the writings of Marx. And we know that he was a godless man opposed to Jesus Christ, desirous of Jesus's throne for himself. And we know the fruit is thousands and thousands of stories like the one that I read earlier about the, the guy who lived in Romania. And on top of that, millions of corpses across the world that have been liquidated due to this ideology. So that's all I got. Next time I do a topical podcast, maybe it'll be about something other than Marxism. But this has been a enjoyable four, three or four different podcasts that I hope sort of more well, like, rounds out the problem our current society is facing for my children, who hopefully, like this man said, thank God my kids will never see what I saw. Hopefully my kids never see what that guy saw either in America. Until then, this is James from The World's Last Night.